I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness. If you don't discuss it, just eats away, eats away, eats away at you. I never talked about it with anybody. The greater damage done to me was keeping the secret. If I can be vulnerable, that'll help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. It makes me sick, literally, physically. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. If I could have known that you and I were alike, I would have had so much more hope. You realize you are not the only one. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. From WMPG, I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's interview from 2014 is with inmate and prison hospice volunteer Bobby Paisant, who I interviewed at the Maximum Security State Prison in Warren, Maine. During the interview, he refers to Candace Powell, who's the executive director of the Maine Hospice Council. It was Candace who started training prisoners to become hospice volunteers for men dying alone in the prison infirmary. This pioneering program has now been going on for 14 years, and as you'll hear from Bobby, has had a remarkable impact, both on those who receive care and those who give it. As you can imagine, I was nervous about going into a maximum security prison to interview someone who'd committed violent crimes. I never would have predicted that the inmate I'd be interviewing would offer me a new way of understanding a central question in my profession. How do you help someone who's caught in a destructive pattern of thought and behavior begin to get curious about their own role in it? Bobby has some profound psychological insights about what actually works. Here's my conversation with Bobby Paisan. I am sitting with Bobby Paisan. He is a resident here at the prison, and uh, I guess prisoner would be the official term. Technically, yes. yes. So I'd like to start by inviting you to tell me a little bit about how you got involved with hospice. How did you hear about it? What made you want to do this? Okay. Um, well, being in prison and having been here for quite a while, one of the unfortunate things about that is you see people come to the end of their lifespan. Um, for me, a personal friend of mine um, spent his last days up in the infirmary here at the prison under hospice care. Uh, he died of cancer. His name was Frank. And I remember going to visit him in his last days. Actually, I, I, got, I was blessed enough to be able to spend um, his last night with him before um, he lost consciousness for the last time being able to see the hospice workers in action and, and the way that they um, just really cared for Frank in every aspect and, and, and did everything in their power to make him feel comfortable. It, it really touched my heart, and, and I immediately felt like it was something I could do. Even though I wasn't a volunteer at that time, Frank being my friend, I'd help, help him out. I'd put lotion on, on his legs and on his hands, um, I'd give him water to drink to help keep him hydrated. I'd help feed him. I'd sneak in special foods for him that he particularly liked. Um, so it was it was something that I I I felt like uh, I could do and wanted to do. And then um, 
I eventually, uh, when the opportunity presented itself, signed up to be considered, and luckily I was chosen. So I'd love to know a little bit about uh, what actually brought you here. What, 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 I'm doing yeah. a 25, all but 18-year sentence uh, for robbery and aggravated assault. I got out of prison in, um, gen on January 7th, 2005, having done 16 years and two months for armed robbery. I got out with a lot of plans, um, but no way to make them happen. I, my release plan included me getting uh, released to my sister's house, which was a crack house. And that was my introduction to the street after a, over a decade and a half. I got into the drug scene pretty heavy, and I was very bad off. I, became, I was like a late-stage addict. I was down in Freeport visiting my father when I left. I was um, just, I just needed, uh, I, did, I just needed to be high real bad. As addicts, we call it getting right, because I was, my equilibrium was so bad, and I was just feeling terrible. And, uh, and to make a long story short, um, in one of the uh, factory outlet parking lots in Freeport, um, I saw a man walk into his car. I got out of the car I was in. Um, I walked up to him, uh, I punched him, I knocked him down. Um, when he came to, I was going through his pockets, I took his credit cards, his phone, and basically I used, I stole his credit cards to um, buy other things that I could trade for Coke. And you got arrested? Uh, a couple weeks later, I, I was arrested on, on a different charge of a... Um, I was driving around in a stolen vehicle the whole time, and I got arrested for that, got in a high-speed chase. Um, and next thing I know, um, this, is, this is my reality once again. And so you have a 25-year sentence that started. Right. I got 25 years all suspended except for 18 of it. So what I'm doing is 18 years, and uh, of which, with good time, I do 15. Um, when I get out, I'll be on probation, and with the, with the seven years that was suspended, that'll be hanging over my head. Oh, I see. So if you violate probation, you'll have to come back in and do those seven. Yes. I see. Okay. I want to come back to your friend Frank and what you saw that night. Okay. Um, had you ever seen someone die before that? No. No. Luckily, no. What was it that you saw that really touched you, that really made you want to be part of that? Just just the, the patience and the attentiveness to his needs. And um, and Frank was a, Frank, was, uh, God bless him, he, he is a stubborn man, a uh, Vietnam vet. Um, and he if he didn't like you, he didn't like you, and he didn't, he didn't mix words about it. Hmm. And, uh, and so... To see how the hospice workers were able to um, come from a position where where Frank wasn't sure what he felt about them to 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 work with him and to gain his trust and and, and in the end he really wanted them there and uh, and just the way they treated him I mean you knew it was all the feelings that were involved and, and everything that they did their actions it was all authentic and so, so you knew happy. Frank and you knew that he wouldn't put up with any. <laughs> 
anything that wasn't authentic, basically. Exactly. I mean, there were there were hospice workers that he said, um, yeah, that guy there is not going to be sitting with me, not working with me. Which in hospice, we um, what we do is we celebrate that right of the um, of the client, for lack of a better word, to to have that ability to to dictate who who works with them because in the end, it's all about their comfort, not anyone else's. We try to take care of them as best as possible um, on a physical level, but also on a on an emotional and, and mental level too. We we work with them and we we try to take them out of the infirmary. Some guys can come out, some guys can't. Um, but we we do everything we can. We exercise up there. We walk the halls. We um, we'll play cards. We, we um, some of us will bring our musical instruments and uh, uh, do do soft music. Uh, with guitar. It sounds like you do a real hybrid between almost direct personal care and some of the more, what I think of as sort of more traditional hospice work, like really listening and being right. present. And I know one of the hosp- traditional services that hospice offers is like a life review, enabling people to really reflect on their life. Do you do that with the people that are dying? Yes, uh, we what we try to do is we try to let them lead, and we follow. But we, um, when they when they give us the openings, um, we we try to take advantage of them and and to encourage them to share uh, about memories, about their fears, and, and about the things that, that 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 make them feel good. You know, we don't we don't try to run from anything. Um, with, with our clients. Uh, we don't feel that's productive and, or beneficial to them. And I think there's a connectedness between pain and healing. Um, I don't believe, and this is my personal thought, that you heal by ignoring pain. As a psychiatrist, I couldn't agree with you more. Oh, I'm glad somebody <laughs> agrees with me on something. <laughs> that's right. In fact, what you said to me as we were just chatting before this interview is, don't try to avoid the pain of my story. Like, this is a redemption story, and I want to talk about the painful part of it. Absolutely. I have great respect for that. Thank you. I know in my own training, what what I was told was, you can't really help someone go there unless you go there yourself. And so we were encouraged to really face our own demons and work through our own issues. Has that been part of your training to, to look at the places of, of things that you might run from inside yourself so that you can help other people not do that? Oh, absolutely. Um, what we call it is being present and understanding what being present really means. It, it, it means not just being there as a witness to what someone else is going through it, but you're actually, you're, you're, you're assisting them on that journey. You're walking the journey with them. So do you have an example of that? Like, I don't know if you can tell me a story, keeping the identities private, but okay. of what it would mean to really be present with someone in something like that. Okay. Um, I'll tell you a story about, um, and um, he, he shares it with everyone. One of my uh, workers, fellow workers, volunteers in here, Steve, Steve Carpentier. Um, one of the people that he was working with with hospice, right, was suffering from dementia. And um, what happened was, is that the person thought they were drowning. And they, and they vocalized that. They said, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And, and Steve uh, 
you know, the easy thing for a lot of people, because they don't get it, is, no, you're not drowning, you're all right. And that's, and so many people, that's the way they communicate. They want to, they want everything quick, you know, and they want to, and they want to tell people, you know, what they are or are not experiencing. And what Steve did, which is very, well, it's not classic, that's for sure, but, but, but it's representative of what we want to do, is he, 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 he cradled the man. And he said, I got you. He says, you're not going to drown. I got you. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let go. And, 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 and what we've taught each other through classes and stuff is when people are going through those things, our job is not to tell them anything about their situation and tell them that their pain isn't real, to tell them their experience isn't real. Our job is to be present, is to go there with them. And then when you go there with them, then you might be able to tease them out of that. How did the man respond to it? He looked up at him and he smiled. Mm. And he was quiet. It's mm. a beautiful story. I think maybe we all want something like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, to feel like you can trust somebody, that they have your needs, your interest, you know, in, in their soul. You know, not to try to correct you or anything, just to, just to be there and to support you and to, and to love you. So striking because, of course, our images of prison life don't include, <laughs> <laughs> they don't include the word love, right? They don't. They include, like, I think before I started doing this series, mm. I thought that to be in prison, probably especially a men's prison, I was imagining that it was a really a lot about portraying a tough image so no one right. would mess with you. I mean, I think that's what I was imagining I would have to do if I was a prisoner here. And is that true in other – and is that true in some parts of life here? or in? Oh, I, absolutely. That, that's true in the majority of it. I mean, that's what we have to struggle against at all times. But, that's, but it's the same thing in life. And when you use the word portray – I think about art, and I think of something that's not really reality, you know, and um, and and that's what that's what people do. They 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 put on these um, these disguises, these coats that represent I'm this, I'm that. Don't mess with me. But what it is, and I can say from firsthand knowledge, a lot of that comes from just our own fear, our own insecurities, you know. Um, the best way to keep you from bullying me or pressing up on me is if I act like an alpha male and I'm totally aggressive towards you, put you on your heels. And that's how a lot of people act in a prison environment. But really, the truth of the matter is, is when you break us down to our basic selves, we're a bunch of scared people that, that really have struggled getting a grip on how to make it in the world out there and how we're making it in here while we have to be here. And with the training that you've had with hospice and with your experiences in being present, do you mm. feel like it's changed how you are day to day in the prison? Yes, I mean, my story, I mean, doesn't begin and end with hospice. I just got my um, associate's degree, you know, from uh, UMA at Augusta, um, like eight classes away from my bachelor's. Um, and so through learning, about this bigger world, and, and, and through actually uh, 
getting some knowledge and so I can actually have, you know, rooted opinions about things rather than just some basic, uh, you know, prejudice or, or viewpoint that, that I can't back up with anything substantial because I don't know anything. So what are you getting your BA in? What's your, what's your major? It's, it's My degree is going to be in liberal arts with a focus on Spanish. So you said that your your story doesn't begin and end with hospice, and I'm curious if you'd tell me more about your story. I did my first adult bid when I was uh, 16. I'm 46 years old now, and so I um, mean, growing up in the system, uh, I went through a lot of time being angry and anti-system, anti-anything authority, and uh, and that that was how I thought and dealt with life for a long time. Uh, you get to a point where you have to, if, you, if you're allowed to really see yourself, you, you get to a point where you have to stop making excuses about the things that have happened in your life and own that you're a participant. And um, I just got to that point and, and, and got tired of, um, of, of doing time, uh, of... Um, of not being able to experience um, being a parent, um, going to graduations, meeting new and interesting people uh, without having the setting of walls, you know. So I just, um, part of it is just getting to that point. It's so 12-step, um, but getting sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, and do you think anyone else can help you get to that point. Like, I'm interested, <clears throat> I'd love to hear <clears throat> your thought on this. As a clinician, because that is a, you're talking about a profound turning point in a person's mm-hmm. life, right. you know, where they decide, all right, I'm going to own my stuff here. And do you think there's a role that someone else can offer in helping someone get to that place, or do you think it really has to come from inside? I, I believe that... Um, you get inspired by people. And that's what helps you on that road to self-discovery and to change. I don't think somebody, you know, that has a degree, that has a certain amount of technical knowledge necessarily is capable of, of helping a person see themselves. When, especially when the person who's the client looks at that person as an authoritative person, and there is no personal connection. Um, one of the things that has made Candace, for example, um, so successful here at this prison is because she's so personable, and, and she lets you into her life. And, and for me, if I was ever um, to pursue higher education, um, and, and get into counseling and stuff, that's the approach that I would take. I'd want to make connections with people, and I'd want to inspire them to be able to think outside the box, you know. And I, I don't think I'd be successful at doing that if I just came at them like, I'm, all right, tell me your thoughts. Or like I know something that you don't, e- like exactly. teaching you something. Exactly. People don't yeah. respond well to that. No. At all. <laughs> no. I've <laughs> observed this. <laughs> yes. Following up on that, I want to tell you a story of my own, if I can. Oh, please. Which is uh, 
before I went to med school, I used to work as a chaplain in a hospital, and I worked with death and dying. That was my interest also. And I used to work on an oncology floor, so I was working with all adults who had cancer, and I mm-hmm. also worked on an HIV floor. And this was in 1990, and it was when the HIV population was still mostly gay men. It was really before IV drugs was on the scene, right. at least in terms of HIV. And I had this idea. I was young. <laughs> I had this idea that as people are approaching death, you know, they would have these incredibly meaningful, intimate conversations with their family about their dying and... Mm. That's what I was hoping for. And what I found is on the oncology floor, well over half of the people I worked with died without ever telling their family that they knew they were dying, without ever talking about what was going on in the room, which I found pretty, I was crushed actually, I was so disappointed. But what I found on the HIV floor was that almost 100% of the guys there that were dying had very intimate deaths where they talked to their partner, they talked to their friends, they knew they were dying, it was in the room, it was very Mm. authentic. And I was fascinated by this difference. And I I started to wonder whether the difficulty of coming out, the difficulty of having to face an identity that's not, that's judged, if there was some gift in that in terms of being more real in the world. Mm. And I found myself wondering if there was, if that was true in prison too, if there's something about out of having to face yourself or having to face being here, if you think that changes the way people face dying, like have to face that cold, hard reality. I think that's part of it. Um, Whether whether you're you're actively dying or or whether you understand that at some point you're going to die, I think people... People want to know that the people that they're surrounding themselves around really, really care about them. I mean, we have our bros that we hang out with and stuff like that, but it, it's almost kind of like these connections are made f- for the convenience of two different parties because uh, people are alone. But the truth of the matter is, is you know, people want to be closer to their family. People want to be closer to loved ones or, or, or be able to experience uh, making a connection with someone that could be a loved one. Um, and those are the things that don't happen here. And so every night when people go to bed here and, 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 and either you're looking at the uh, ceiling or you're looking at the, um, the, the bottom of the bunk above you, you know, there's, that's when you're really, at those moments, you're really in touch with what's where your fears are and, and, and what you want to do. And people don't want to die in prison. Nobody wants to die in prison. And nobody wants to die um, not just being alone, but let me personalize this a little bit. Not only do I not want to die in prison, but I don't want to die with this stigma that, that is associated with my being in prison. I don't want people to say, um, yeah, Bobby Paisan could have, should have done all this, but he chose to be this instead. I don't want the um, actions of my past to dictate how I'm perceived for the rest of my life. I want the things that I'm doing today to, 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 to weigh in on that. You know, and I, and I don't feel like if I continue 
my life in prison that that really happens in an adequate manner. I feel like people, because you're locked away, people don't see you. They don't, you know, it's not every day um, radio stations come in that ask us to talk to them. That doesn't happen on an everyday basis. And so we don't, we're not given a, a platform or a format to share who we are, you know. And, and, and so people out there, a lot of people who are suffering because they were victimized by people like myself, you know, they have that one view. And nobody's out there saying, hey, there's more to it than that, you know while at the same time acknowledging their grief and their pain. You know, because I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I say. I own what I did, and, and, uh, and my victim, and I, and I made sure I said this to him in court, did not have that coming to him. There was, you know, he didn't deserve that, um, and I live with that, you know, because if someone knows me and they get to know me, when I'm not high, when I'm not doing, making bad decisions, they know that I'm a very caring person that I, and that I want to add something to your life. I don't want to take away. And so to, to have become that person that, 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 was, that was stealing and taking away from people and neglecting the person who I am, my core self, you know, you know that, that eats me up. That eats me up, and you know, and... Um, and I can't say sorry enough times. So what do I do? I think about it, and I say, okay, well, moving forward, because I have to move forward, what do I do? And what I do is I make a decision on, okay, I have to get a better relationship with myself. That's going to enable me to get a better relationship with other people. And, and, I, need, and I need to do things differently. And, that, and, that's, and that's what I've tried to do, you know, and... In the process of doing that, I've been rewarded with such great experiences, um, such as being a part of hospice, by being able to serve other people, by um, getting to know great people from all over with all different types of professions. So, you know. I'm, I'm very touched by your story, partly because as a psychiatrist, I work with people who've often been victims, you know, who mm -hmm. may have trauma histories. And so often, one of the consequences of trauma is that the person blames themselves, yeah. right? Our whole yeah. culture blames the victim. And they'll, they'll take inside, like, how was this my fault? What did I do? If only I had done this differently, I should have been able to prevent it. Mm -hmm. So for you to know that intuitively and make sure that you told the person in court, mm -hmm. you didn't do anything wrong. Right. You helped that person so much. Well, I would I would hope. I I also gave him a letter because I know in the in the context of court being in a courtroom. Um, I mean, I'm about ready to be sentenced. To the to them, they may feel like, well, he's just saying that, hoping the judge shows leniency, you know. So I, I gave him a letter and I asked him to read it at home later on. You know, after everything's all said and done, and, and he'll know my heart. And whether he did or not, I don't know. Um, I just know that I made that effort. And that's in, in the end, that's all I can do is control me, you know, and hope, you know, that, um, that, that that particular person um, finds the healing that they need.
from this particular situation that, that I put him through. Um, I'd like to see more of an effort for victim offender mediation within the prison, face-to-face -face, uh, with, with a mediator. And, and so, so people can get closure. You know, to me, it, it, it's, it's all about healing. You know, people get stuck, it, it, no matter what their place is in life, when, when they can't deal with their pain, when they can't process it, no matter how small or how great. Um, you know, people who might have had family members or loved ones who, whose lives were taken by others, people who've uh, had their life savings stole, people who were sexually assaulted, people, whoever. To give people an opportunity to see the people that, that have caused them that to hurt and to find some type of closure. Now, that doesn't always mean that parties will walk away and you know, enamored with each other, but it gives people the opportunity to find closure and to be healed so they can move forward. I would love to see that being used. Thank you, Bobby. This has been really an honor to talk well, to you. Thank you for having me. That was my 2014 interview with prisoner and hospice volunteer Bobby Paisant. When it first aired, it was part of a series of interviews about the stigma of incarceration and the challenge of starting over. If you want to hear more of the shows from that series or any of our other past shows about the subjects that we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graven for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.